Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. This time 10 years ago, Mark Marquez was about to explode into MotoGP and make history and break records in a way that even those who had followed his incredible junior career probably didn't see coming to that extent. 10 years on, 2023, and he's about to make not another injury comeback as such. He's been back a few races at the end of last year, but the start of this new season is the biggest test yet of Mark Marquez's ongoing recovery and whether his Honda relationship can actually be properly salvaged. All of which means it's a fantastic time to release a really intriguing new documentary series about him. I'm Matt Beer, the Race MotoGP podcast winter testing stand-in host, and joining me are a mid-honeymoon Simon Patterson and a mid-work Valentin Hurinci, and they've both put quite a lot of time aside to watch and enjoy this Marquez documentary over the weekend. So we're going to use that as the framework for a chat about where Mark Marquez stands right now, going into 2023, what his future might hold, and quite a lot about his past as well. And of course, this comes against the backdrop of MotoGP's first attempt to replicate Formula One's drive to survive success, having been, well, the opposite of success. Last year's MotoGP Unlimited on Amazon Prime was uh, frankly a disaster in how it was released, particularly due to dubbing issues. And it's fair to say it made nowhere near the impact of F1's equivalent. Can this Marquez documentary series make up for that a a little bit? Uh, Simon, Val, who wants to go first with just your impressions of uh, of what you've been watching initially? Simon, go for it. Um, it it's not going to make up for MotoGP Unlimited in that this isn't going to be the, the smash hit that Unlimited also wasn't um, for multiple reasons. Um, you know, I, I, I watched the first three episodes and as I've said to Val repeatedly since then, even though we disagree slightly on it, uh, it's in Spanish, it's dubbed over. Um it's subtitled as well, so we don't have the debacle that was the launch of MotoGP Unlimited. But it, you know, that in itself limits the audience that this is going to reach, which is a shame because it's a really good documentary. Um, I've been working with Mark Marquez since 2016, and I'd, I'd like straight out say this is the most that I've seen him open himself up in in what we've seen so far from the documentary, both in terms of the. The recorded interview stuff, um, you know, the first episode without any spoilers kind of goes back to the future and opens with a scene where you can barely get words out. He's that emotional. Um, and then all the way through the storyline of, of, you know, his crash, his recovery, his setbacks, he comes out of it as a, a much more accessible person than he ever is when he's faced with the MotoGP media. Uh, and that's that's quite a nice thing to see, actually. It's, it's a... It is real, genuine, behind-the-scenes, sort of behind-the-curtain content, which MotoGP hasn't really had and which MotoGP Unlimited absolutely didn't deliver. Go on, Val, see if you disagree about subtitles in a convincing way. Yeah, um, well, I don't disagree to a point because obviously it limits the reach as much as I'd like to pretend that everybody is, you know, just up for reading subtitles when it's convenient artistically. Like, I don't think that's the case. I 
for instance, I love Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, the black and white movie that Netflix released and made an, an Oscar contender. But it was, I suspect it was significantly limited by the fact that it was Spanish with, with English subtitles and also black and white really slow. But, you know, anyway, it's a... In terms of marketing, I think it's really bad that it's Spanish only. Maybe I'm underrating the, the, the general public, underestimating them, but I, you know, it's quite a commitment to sit there and, you know, listen to a different language, have to have your eyes trained on subtitles, have to not distract yourself from the screen with some sort of thing. I think artistically, it's very important. Artistically, having people speak their first primary language and this kind of thing is, is always preferred because then you do not have them pause to choose words. They can be more honest, they can be more open, they can feel more at ease with what they're saying without the fear that they're gonna say something that they'll instantly realize needs to hit the cutting room floor and cannot be out there. Like it's, just, it's just a question of language control and I think especially for sports people who are very measured in what they say, which means they're, I think, extra guarded when they speak a different language because they're only too aware of how how much things can be taken, not even out of context, but if you put a sentence out there, it's out there. So in, in that regard, I think the fact that it's in Spanish with English subtitles, I think is artistically very good. And just on a wider point, it is, I mean, you guys have seen me basically gushing about it in, in, in our work Slack. Uh, so I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna lay down lay the cards down on the table. It's excellent. It's it's very good. There are there are certain problems with it that are like conceptual problems you can't really get around, which we'll get to. But the the artistry on display, things that don't even really have anything to do with Mark or Mark's specific story, it is preposterously well made. Uh, a slight example. Uh, I think it's of the three episodes we've both seen uh, for the review copy basically thing. Uh, one of them has a very extended section about Mark's diplopia at the start of this year and obviously hearkening back to its first occurrence. And there is a point in the episode where the editors recreate diplopia on screen. They make you see diplopia. I was hooting and hollering. I was like, there are, I, you know, I like cinematography. I like editing. I'm, I'm interested in, in that kind of thing. I was absolutely, I was applauding in front of the screen because that's, that kind of thing shows me that you're not there to collect a paycheck. You really, really care about delivering not just a product, but a, like a genuine movie, basically, except it's a TV show, so I'm being stupid in, in my wording. And that's, you know, that comes through in every episode, in the transitions, in how, you know, in how the story is positioned going back and forth between things. You get the feeling that sometimes they've had to stretch things a little bit to hit what is it? It's like 60, 30 minute episodes. And you're just talking about, no, like mostly one year of Mark. So you have to get pretty creative with how you fill the gaps. And I don't think there's anything like monumentally revealing, but it's just like the artistry on display is such that it doesn't really matter. Uh, well, we're praising the production. We should mention who's created it. So it's, this is out on Amazon Prime, but it is Red Bull's TV arm that is responsible for, for creating this. Um, Val, unless I misheard, I did think you said 60 30-minute episodes. <laughs> it's, did I? it's a bit shorter. It, it's six. So. They've shown it every minute of Mark's season. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Yeah, the, the, the Depopia thing is fantastic. It really is. Val had kind of warned me that there was something amazing coming up and I saw it. It was like, wow. And then the, the immediate next scene is that they give Mark an iPad and make him watch it without him having previously seen it. And he's like, you've caught it. This is what was going on in my brain at the time. You've absolutely nailed what, you know, the mental image that I was getting. So they've done super well there. Um, Val mentioned kind of deeper problems, maybe. I don't think is necessarily the right word, but a, a sort of a, you know, this, this thing behind it that kind of skews the whole thing. And that for me is actually another reason why it should have been in English. Um, because this is worth noting that it's produced by the Marquez brothers, essentially. Um, it's made by Red Bull TV. It's made in cooperation with Dorna. But you know, Mark and Alex are the producers or the executive producers in part yeah. of this series. So if someone had said... Yeah. If you go at the, at the start, if you look at the, at the at the very first logo of the episode, it's, I think, the Fast Brothers or something yeah, like that. Which is their you new go market. Google that, you look up the company, you look at who the two directors are. And I think also one of their entourage is the third one. Yeah. Yeah, you, kind of, you figure out what's happening there. Yeah, which, which means it's worth noting that this is essentially a PR piece. You know, it, it is, at the end of the day, PR. Uh, it's not a, an honest documentary. I'm not saying by any means that it hides things necessarily, but there are a few little omissions here and there that don't quite tell the full story that, you know, whenever you've been around and whenever you know some of the history, you think, yeah, it's it's not completely straight, which is fine, because that's not what it's, you know, it's, it's quite honest about who it is. Um, but that's another reason why it should have been in English, because it means if you say something in English that isn't exactly completely correct, yeah. you can reshoot it, because you yeah. control the production at the end of the day. You know, that's that's that would have been easily done um, through the yeah. process. That it, It's not a gotcha, there's not going to be a gotcha moment out of this. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it, I, I think we're. it's fair for us to assume that whatever Mark really didn't want to be there does not make it there. And that's... That is a conceptual problem you can't really do anything about. I, I've heard, I, I probably already brought this up on this podcast at some point, but the theory that a documentary about a subject is at its best when it shows its subject at their worst, I think is a, is a very convincing theory. And in this case, it's not going to happen. This is a Marcus joint. It is going to show things from Marcus's perspective. Is it lying to you? Is it like, emitting significant truths? Honestly, probably not. I don't think so. It seems like a fairly, like I said it wasn't too revealing, but that's in terms of like events. Like if you follow MotoGP closely, nothing's going to shock you. You're just, I think if you follow it really closely, you're going to come out of it feeling that your preconceptions of Mark were basically justified, that he is the kind of guy that he appears to be, just more complicated and more interesting. Uh, there's no like shocks, but there is like he he's not afraid of seeming vulnerable. He's not afraid of seeming, I think, insecure in bits. He's not afraid of, you know, showing how he is with other people. Um, he's just, you know, but he, there's not going to be anything that uh, if you dislike Mark, this is not really a documentary for you. There's he does not come out of it looking bad, which is, I guess, not a surprise because you know it's it's his it's his thing he's the producer i mean you say you, you want the documentary to show a subject at its worst now I, I agree this does not make marquez look like a bad person anyway and as we'll get on to a little bit later if you're part of the valentino rossi fan club you, you're going to have some strong opinions about about this series 
but it does show him at his worst in terms of coming straight in at the, the lowest ebb of his career and dealing with all the biggest blows of his career. And uh, obviously that's very topical going into this season as well. Did we learn much that we didn't previously know about the accidents, the surgery and his attitude to them? Or was it more revealing in terms of the personality he, sh- he showed about them? What, what did you guys take from how the crashes, the injuries and the choices around them were portrayed? I, I don't think we learned anything new from it in that he didn't throw anyone under the bus for forcing them back too soon. Uh, he didn't exaggerate any of the injuries that he had. He didn't downplay any of the injuries he had or the pain level. You know, if anything, it kind of shows that he was quite honest the whole way through the process with us. Um, if if this is to be taken, you know, if you take the whole thing as a sort of cleared package of evidence, then yeah, there, there's not really been anything we've learned from it. And I don't think there's anything that a casual even MotoGP fan is going to particularly learn from it. Certainly there's there's nothing that anyone who's a MotoGP fan to the extent that they're listening to our podcast is going to learn from it. You know, you know what, you know the storyline. Um, but like you say, Matt, the, the interesting things are the personalities and the, not even the personality of Mark that we really see. The, the really impressive thing for me from it, the real takeaway for me was uh, how fundamental to Mark Marquez's success, Alex Marquez's. More than anything else, that's what we see. You know, Alex is is the rock here. Um, and that was really interesting to watch and, and quite nice because Alex seems to be, you know, when we deal with Mark, um, to be completely honest, a lot of the time he can come across as quite robotic almost in how he goes about things. He's, he's very PR savvy. He's very focused on a race weekend. Um, and the documentary kind of shows that that's just his personality a little bit, that he's like that a little bit at home as well. And it almost takes Alex Marquez being in the room to get the best out of Mark. And, and that really interest, that interested me and surprised me. Um, the dynamic between the two of them is, is, I would go as far as to say, almost fundamental to Mark's career success whenever you see how strong it is. Uh, across the first couple of episodes, there are several Alex Mark episodes that are actually really revealing in in terms of not in terms of the events, but in terms of how how their relationship is, how important they are to one another, and how how much they're able to influence one another. And I'm, you know, we're not going to spoil the exact details, but the details in that case are are really interesting. And you know. I imagine all the brothers in, in MotoGP are fairly close. I don't think like Aleish and Paul, I imagine, are, are extremely close. They always come across as quite, you know, they're also both the kind of character that you can really imagine having really strong familial bonds. But they also have, I, w- I would say, families of their own, like, obviously. Whereas Mark and Alex are bachelors, clearly, and it, it does for all intents and purposes, come across like they're each other's most important person. And it's very important to see Mark from that side because we all know he's great. We all know he does things on a bike that nobody else does. His, you know, we all know his CV. We've all seen his heroics. We've seen his good and his you know bad sort of Terminator killer side. We all know that. I think the human being Mark Marquez hasn't always come across in MotoGP. And... Not that, like, that's not really a criticism of him. That's just, you know, that's just who he is. He's a guarded kind of guy. He's a smart kind of guy. So he knows what he wants to put out there and what he doesn't want to put out there. But how deep the bond with Alex is, that really serves to humanize him. So if, honestly, if you're indifferent to, to Mark, 
seeing his interactions with Alex in this show, it might nudge you a little bit towards a more positive outlook of him, I think. It, it did almost make me a little bit sad that their season as Repsol teammates hadn't happened. Yeah. Whereas up till now, I'd never, <laughs> never really considered that that was a loss to MotoGP because I felt Alex just should not have been in that ride in the first place. And it was obviously a, a, a terrible idea. So, but yeah, it did make me wonder how that year might have turned out had Mark had Mark stayed fit. I also found that what you're saying about his ro- robotic side helped me kind of put my finger on something I'd always thought about Mark. He's been at the centre of so many big rivalries and controversies, but he has done it in a, with a poker face most of the time. Like sometimes his celebrations seem, seemed forced and that sort of thing. Like all the, Whenever Honda got him trying to replicate some kind of Rossi celebration of a championship, it was always like, this is not convincing in the slightest. And you could, even if he was seeming to be a bit mischievous and trying to wind up a rival, you could all, you couldn't be as confident as you could with, say, a Valentino Rossi or a Jorge Lorenzo that, yes, they are they are trying to get under someone's skin right now. They're doing this with a raised eyebrow and a little wink, whereas with Mark, it's like, is he trying to be disingenuous and wind someone up, or is he just actually saying that at face value? Because you couldn't, you couldn't read him that well. And I always wondered if that was a language barrier thing, because I'm an English journalist, and I, you know, I haven't been in the paddock very much at all, so was I missing out on the real thing? But actually, I even in the first few seconds of this series, I started to get a proper glimpse of something he's hinted at with his interviews over the last year or so, which is perhaps through some more maturity and perhaps much more importantly through the experiences he's had making him open up more. But the, the non-robot Marquez is, is is real. Yeah. Yeah, he is. I, I, to be fair, I think both the robot and non-robot are just, you know, parts of the same character. I Like, he's guarded, but I don't think he's, like, worked on being guarded. He's just... I still sound he's not a showman he does do mind games I think that much is clear and on track he's on track he obviously is a showman and he is a menace he will you know he will follow you out the pit box he will deliberately impede you during a qualifying lap uh like you know Kota was at 19 when he was playing with Maverick Vinales I think or something like that it's he basically sacrificed the pole position by doing that because it was you know it was Kota he can start whatever at Kota. It doesn't matter. So I might as well, you know, mess with one of my rivals. Um, but that's, you know, that's Mark on track. Off track, Marquez is, there's a combination there where it's like, you know, Rossi is the showman. He's the hero. He's the protagonist of the story. Mark Marquez is the T-1000. <laughs> he is, like, genuinely, but a very sort of, like, he's robotic, but he's, that's like part of his character and that actually for me that makes him a little bit more human because i understand it i get it why he wants to be that way in moto gp why he is that way and you see a a a bunch of that in the show i think but he also there is a a bit of that vulnerability that that comes through i mean he's he's wholly unapologetic in the show about the guy that he is on track as well Uh, there's 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 no denying that and he doesn't try to um, which is quite refreshing, you know. He knows that he's an asshole on track. He doesn't doesn't mince away from it, and he acknowledges that Valentino Rossi was pure show on track. You know, the, he admits to that yeah. a few times in the documentary because one of the episodes delves into his history with Rossi, probably better than anything that we've seen so far. Really does yeah. in that it only tells one side of the story, obviously, but it, it goes deep on it, um, which is really cool. Um, the, the, the other thing about Mark's personality that stood out for me that, as a bit of a takeaway was um, the documentary really gets how close the bond is with the team and, and how tight he is with the guys around him. 
Um, one of the episodes covers the the problem in Coda last year that probably cost him a race win. And, you know, he, he is vociferous in his defense of the teammate that uh, made a mistake, um, which is not something that's unique to MotoGP riders. You know, Alicia Spagaro did the same thing later in the year, but um, Mark, Mark was strong and that, that team bond shows really strongly across everything we've seen so far. I mean, that is, you know, that is a good scene and that is a good, like, the specifics of that scene are really good, but it is also absolutely the kind of thing you include in a documentary you produced to show you're a, you know, you're a yes. pretty good guy. Yeah, which yes, I like. True. I, be I believe that was his actual stance. And I know we're sort of talking about it in slight secrecy because we just don't want to spoil the thing. You'll see. But yeah, it's also, it's one of those moments where you sort of remember who put together this documentary and the whole Rossi I think it's like a big part of an episode. It isn't a full episode, but it's like a big, big section. It's really good. It's really, really interesting. Valentino Rossi comes across terribly. He does not come across well at all. This is, you can, again, th this is where you can tell who who is the, uh, the client behind this documentary. <laughs> um, it's like, you know, whoever's seen the F1 documentary Senna, Alain Prost looks awful in that. A lot of people have a lot of issue with with the Senna doc because of how badly it, it you know, Prost comes across. I think there's there's slightly a similar thing going on here with Rossi, but you know at the same time your mileage may vary on that one because a lot of people I think are generally convinced that Sepang 2015 was just and you know all that led up to it before and since was just Rossi misjudging the situation completely and being wrong. Ah, look, I'm one of those people, so. That's why maybe the episode didn't bother me so much. I have to say I, I am in that camp as well, Val. I, I, yeah, I, I've mentioned it before on the podcast. I, I can't get my head around the opposing view of Sabang 2015 particularly. But Well, you're not going to get an opposing view in, in this documentary. You're going to get that yeah, view. Indeed. That view. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, there already is one view on sale. Here. It is also like, it, it did strike me the fact that as soon as it was mentioned, this did appear in the documentary. I do feel like, you know, Rossi has not wasted the chance to mention Sepang 2015 since Sepang 2015 and probably never will. Marquez has tended to play it straighter. Even at the time, he wasn't, he wasn't stirring things as much. Does that, would you say that changes? Is this, is this Marquez finally chucking, chucking his little missile back in nearly eight, nearly eight years on? I, I, I partly, but I think that the documentary also gives us a bit of insight into why he was the way he was at the time as well. Because yeah. he, he basically explains that he was told by his advisors, you can't take on Valentino Rossi in the media and win. Yeah. That the best thing to say is to say nothing here because yeah. there's nothing you can say that's going to beat him. And, and you know, arguably that is the completely right advice. There is no way that, that Marquez could have spun it at the time that would have made the majority of... Rossi fans, which arguably at the time were the majority of MotoGP fans, uh, you know, see it in a more positive view because Rossi controlled the narrative. And I, I mean, either either it's very clever misdirection by the scriptwriters or whatever, but there are certainly chunks of that episode where you can sort of tell that if Mark thought he could get away with it, there would be no Rossi in this documentary. There is there is a sense that he that is not dirty laundry. He loves to air. That is not drama he particularly loves to revisit. It's there is a, a feeling that it still kind of hurts in a not a very deep way, but in a like the whole why me? Why why did we have to do this? Why did this have to happen? Type of thing. Not really remorse of any kind. Not even close. But 
a little bit of regret, I guess, in how, how it all turned out. Um, yeah, so it's, look, that episode's really, really good. And if you're going to check out one of them, but like of the three we've seen, all of them are highly recommended. But that one is the, the third one. It's really good stuff. Yeah. I, I, I still just feel that even though I would say I was in Team Marquez as a fan around that incident, I didn't mean I thought Marquez was entirely innocent in his whole conduct through that season. I just thought, you're taking on Valentino Rossi. You've seen what Valentino Rossi has done to rival after rival. No harm in giving Rossi a bit of Rossi. That, that's my that's my argument on it, really. And for, yeah, the, the then Rossi trying to suggest how heavily it all weighed on Marquez's side. I was like, oh, come on. Look at your whole career. You're, you're incredible. You, you are the reason I started watching MotoGP 10 years before that. But come on. There, there is an admission that Marquez isn't entirely innocent in that whole situation. And it does not necessarily come from Marquez in that episode. It comes from celebrity interviewee Jorge Lorenzo, who <laughs> is of also course. involved and enriches the experience. They've got some good interviewees. They've got Lorenzo. They've got the already split with Marquez, Emilio Alzamora. They've got uh, Danny Pedrosa to show up. And I think one of the episodes we haven't seen yet is going to go in on the Marquez-Pedrosa relationship. Yeah, I think the Which, next one. Honestly, I'm really excited about seeing when I, when I get the chance to see because I think I didn't quite realize just reviewing some of the past materials how pretty serious the bad blood between them was at the time and the fact that they got you know danny to participate and talk about it danny who hates media completely and does yeah. not want to say an extra word ever if he doesn't have to so yeah that's going to be also i think really really interesting yep um vows just jumped me in the the two chat queue there to make the exact same point as me in a way that um I think of all the voices that appear in it, Jorge Lorenzo's is probably one of the most interesting after Mark and Alex themselves, because he speaks like someone that understands what's going on inside Mark Marquez's head. He's he was really interesting for me. Um getting him on board for it was a was a really good scoop for them. Um, you know, who else would you want in a documentary about Sapang twenty fifteen than the guy that eventually won the championship. Valentino Rossi. You'd want Valentino if Rossi. If you can't yeah. have Rossi. <laughs> yeah, if you can't have Rossi, you want the next best thing, and that's Jorge Lorenzo. did think as well that um, if this has been Marquez finally having a say about Sepang 2015, doing it in a year when Rossi isn't turning up in the paddock basically at all is probably a really good shout. Not that you'll ever silence Valentino Rossi. You know, People will get hold of him. He'll make himself available yeah. if he's got a message he wants to put out. And hanging around the GT paddock is quite a good idea for him, for anyone wanting to get his take on MotoGP uh, events these days. But um, yeah, waiting till Rossi was off the scene on a day-to-day -day basis was probably quite a good, quite a good move. As we said at the start, 2023 is 10 years since Marquez arrived in MotoGP. And to me, this is this is one of the no, actually, this might be my absolute favorite storyline in all the time I've been involved in, in MotoGP news professionally. And it's just because I saw his full rise through 125s, 250cc and, and, and Moto2. Actually, timing-wise, was it all Moto2? I've forgotten what, uh, where he sat across the 250 to Moto2 transition. It was all Moto2. It was 125 cc and then 2 yeah, seasons Moto2. That was it. Yeah, so... And during the junior career, there were so many ridiculously incredible rides from the backs of grids, sometimes for completely daft Marquez reasons like crashing on a sighting lap. 
but it didn't matter where he was on the grid. He could win with such a margin over everybody else. And there was there was talk at the time of, yeah, has he, is he somehow running bent engines? Is there some kind of conspiracy around around this kid to make him look this good? Because it looks like he's riding with a much more powerful bike sometimes than everybody else, such as his his enormous speed advantage in what should be really open series. And then he gets to MotoGP, and it's like, oh no, oh no, this this is uh, this is absolutely real. And of course, even before he gets to MotoGP, Repsol Honda's got to get the rules changed to even allow him to get on its bike because this is the period when, I guess, in an attempt to kind of open the field up, Dorna was saying you cannot uh, you cannot put a rookie on a factory bike; they have to go via a, a satellite team first a rule which i think lasted about five seconds until one of the biggest teams yeah. had a big a big rising star name actually wanted to put on its factory bike i mean arguably um, it didn't even last that long because suzuki got an exemption for alvaro bautista and anyway, yeah. he had no satellites so great did role. it ever affect anybody ben spees, ben spees. possibly yeah, yeah i believe ben spees yeah oh poor ben spees so, <laughs> so ben much spees. bad luck in his career and that guy yeah another r- random left field piece of bad luck to affect him what 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 stands out to to you two when thinking about marquez's arrival and, and everything that happened in, around that uh, so my memories are like very much of an outside like in that time i only really started following MotoGP and just generally was having my motorsport epiphany of sorts before that i was mostly a, a gamer <laughs> studying political science um, what what stands out was, you know, I've reviewed old materials and honestly, the impression I got from the, the, the preseason test that I looked at, the, the words that I looked at, is that like, it wasn't a massive shock. It wasn't like, it was a surprise what eventually happened, but it does not feel like a seismic thing that came out of nowhere. It does not feel like Casey Stoner 2007. Um, there's... There's a MotoGP.com video feature, very cool one, where they got a bunch of the the press basically to make their predictions during the the preseason for for 2013. Among them are current current uh, commentator Matt Burke, he was at MCN at that point. Among them is uh, Günther Weisinger of Speedweek, who we reference quite frequently. And you can you can you can tell what the narrative is coming into the season. Stoners walked away, so now it's. Pedrosa versus Lorenzo, Pedrosa versus Lorenzo. But everyone is fairly confident. Like, Mark's going to win some races. Mark maybe might be in the title fight. Mark's going to be there or thereabouts. Maybe he'll make some rookie mistakes. Maybe he won't have the season longevity to do it. Those predictions aren't necessarily wrong because I don't think he was the fastest rider that year. He was just the least hurt. But he was still, you know, he was still phenomenally fast. Obviously, you don't win the MotoGP title against Rossi and Lorenzo, or Rossi and Lorenzo, Pedrosa and Lorenzo, both at their peak, without being phenomenally fast, and he was. But it could have gone any of three ways. It's not like he like completely took it by storm and left everybody else no chance. The thing that sticks with me most is reviewing the materials and seeing MotoGP go testing at Kota, and it's like, it's like oh, cracking open a book and reading the first page when you already know the ending, like. Oh, everyone else doesn't know what they're in for. Even Mark doesn't know what's going to happen here. Mark doesn't know that this is going to be his track and that nobody else will even dare set foot on the top step unless he allows it to him by crashing out of a five-second lead um, or failing to start his bike like last year. So that's And, you know, he topped that test by six tenths. So I had to know at that point, I guess. But we certainly, we found out in the coming years. Yeah, that, that was like the first inkling I had looking back at that time that something was up uh, because I was at MCN with Matt Burt at the time 
and they had sent a full camera crew to Coda because they'd organized a one-on-one interview in pit lane with Mark because that test, weirdly, wasn't an official test, so we were allowed to shoot video at it. Yeah. Um, and I remember then, like, Birdie coming back and being like, yeah, this kid's, like, this is the real deal. He is going to be, not, a, not, not you know, a runaway champion this year, but he's, he's going to be there. Um, he's going to be close to it. And that is exactly how it panned out, basically. Um, the 13th season was impressive only because he was a rookie, and that's taken nothing away from it. Uh, but it wasn't the 14th season where he won the first 10 races or the 19th season where he won with the biggest ever point gap. Um, you know, it, it was a fight, um, but it was definitely the first time that we can inkling that Mark Marquez was a fighter uh, because... Yeah. There's this weird thing in MotoGP sometimes in Moto2 and Moto3 or 125 and 250 where guys can be so fast that they you you, you don't really see how talented they are in a scrap because they're just better than everyone else. And he was like that, you know. The, all the contact that Mark made with other people in Moto2 was because Mark was being an idiot normally. <laughs> yeah. Not because he was trying to ride through them like we then saw when he came to MotoGP. Um, but, you know, yeah, we, we very quickly learned that season. And I think it was probably a bigger shock to Pedroza and Lorenzo than it was to anyone watching from the sidelines. Um, it's also quite telling about how MotoGP has changed in 10 years because Dorna wouldn't ask a journalist for the time right now, let alone for uh, <laughs> opinions in the season. <laughs> I think the thing that, thinking back to that season, I was excited to see Marquez come in. I've, I've been really excited by what he'd done in, in 125 and Moto2. As it became clear he might be champion, I, I started to dislike the idea. I, I was I was just thinking at the time, this is making it look from the outside a little bit too easy. We've had the era of what was called the aliens with Stoner, Rossi, Lorenzo and Pedrosa being these four untouchables who were absolute all-time greats. The rest of the field couldn't get near. And now here's someone walking in at a spectacularly young age with no MotoGP experience and he's going to beat them to a title. Now Rossi, obviously had just got back to Yamaha, finding his feet again. Lorenzo got injured during that season. Pedrosa got injured. I, I think that was one of Lorenzo's greatest seasons to do some of the races he did with the injuries he had. But yeah, by the middle of the year, I was I was semi-resenting what Marquez was doing. As, as great a story as it was, the fan part of me was going, no, can you not Can you not do this to MotoGP, yeah. please? There's, there's proper great riders here who you make it look a bit silly. Well, yeah, it's also like, I, I completely understand what you mean because it's, it's like it's narratively unsatisfying. You're not like you're not having the hero's journey because you're not maximizing yourself. You're only sort of you can be better. It's clear, and you will be better. I think 2014 didn't really surprise that many people because you're like, yeah, the, the kid was champion in his rookie year. Of course, he's going to win 50 races in a row. <laughs> he's you know he's still he's still got so much margin to improve, and he already won the title. I think it is there is something about it. I'm going to do a classic Val thing and bring up another sport. We've just had the Super Bowl of, you know, quarterbacks, Jalen Hurts versus Patrick Mahomes. Jalen Hurts is a new guy. He was great. But I, you know, watching the Super Bowl, I was like, you're great. This is too early for you. I want to see you do the hero's journey. And I think <laughs> like the same thing I kind of felt with Mark in 2013. But thankfully, sports doesn't doesn't work that way, you know. Uh uh, you could also argue, I guess, Jean Mir's title came too early in terms of you know his personal progression. But you know we don't we don't just award it based on merit. Not everybody can be 
the satisfying narrative arc of IndyCar champion Will Power, where he like <laughs> flubs the title 17 times in a row before finally winning it in this, you know, release of ecstasy and narrative coherence. So yeah, you know, sometimes we also we have to see these these sort of things happen. They're part of the fun. And then Will Power did a sequel all these years later as well. Yeah. The, the struggling, yeah. recovering hero's journey. But Simon, what are your thoughts? The, the thing for me that probably works against Mark, um, especially in the context of what Val has just said about having to earn your journey, is that he would not have been 2013 world champion if Casey Stoner had still been in the grid. Yeah, true. I'm, I'm fairly confident in saying that. Um, and that's almost what, like, that that was the key that allowed Marquez to be a rookie champion. Um, I, I think it would have been hard to look at Stoner, uh, at anyone but Stoner, sorry, as the favourite for that year if we'd went into it in normal circumstances, probably with Marquez's teammate. Um, maybe Honda wouldn't have changed, tried for a road change and have stuck him into a satellite team, but I yeah. can't see that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, I, but, you know, the, the Stoner versus Marquez teammate, Joe, is the greatest story that will never be told in yeah. the GP. Like, that, that's what we all wanted to see, right? Yeah, so we've been, we've been robbed of that generation change basically twice in a row now. We didn't get yeah. Marquez Stoner, and we haven't really got Marquez Quartararo, which we deserved. Because Mark got hurt, unfortunately. Marcus Quartararo in 2020 or 2020. Well, 2021, because 2020 was terrible for Fabio. But 2021 would have been box office. Mark on a slightly worse bike. Fabio, you know, finding his feet and becoming the... Basically the heir apparent to the throne, which I think Mark himself recognizes at this point. I think there's a, a, an enormous amount of respect from Mark to Fabio. But also presumably an understanding that, okay, you're the... You know... Pecco won this past year, and Pecco is really great. But if there's one guy who Mark will want to assert himself over coming forward, it's it's Fabio, I think. And yeah, so far we've been denied. You know, obviously Stoner Marquez we're never getting. Maybe Marquez Quartararo is still coming. It's it's quite funny that there's a bit in the documentary where Mark talks about how he doesn't use social media anymore, and then they immediately cut to a shot of him liking Fabio's post on Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I still think that I still think that duel is going to unfold, but there's slightly, like you say, a very different hero's journey narrative to it. I, I, I drifted off slightly during all of that because I ended up playing fantasy 2013 silly season in my head and debating whether Honda really would would Honda really have demoted or got rid of Pedrosa at that point. I can't see it, but. It would, yeah. I just think that was a three into two dilemma. That I mean, let's let's not get into playing fantasy mid twenty ten silly season for the rest of the episode. But I, I, I at some point let's do it and write about it because I, I don't know how Honda would have resolved that had Stoner not done that bombshell retirement announcement. I, just, I should say I should say Pecco's going to punish me for that comment this year by like winning every sprint and every race, <laughs> and I'll I'll deserve it. So yeah. This this is the nice narrative journey we're in we're in now where actually there are a few more protagonists in it. I do as much as yeah. I get the head storyline like a Marquez Stoner would have been like a Marquez Rossi. Well, actually, Marquez Rossi was not a storyline in terms of dominance of MotoGP because Rossi's era had effectively finished, and then somehow yeah. he managed to find himself becoming the arch soap opera rival of the new great without ever well without really properly apart from once having a title battle with him. But let's I'm not going to take us down the Sepang rabbit hole again unless Simon fancies it well, well I was just going to say that that should be the way that Valentino Rossi's MotoGP career ended considering that you know 
the like four people whose careers he ended by making the pantomime villain. Yeah, he you know he 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 became what he was so fight he was fighting against essentially, which is actually quite nice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's uh, let's move from the the past to the present. We've gone through the surgeries, we've gone through the rivalries, we've gone through the explosive arrival. Reality for 2023, Mark Marquez, is he has not won a title for quite some time now. He's not been fully fit for quite some time now. He's going into this season on a bike that no one has particular confidence is actually going to be race-winning competitive and having made more noises about being unhappy with Honda than at any other point in his career. So how long is Mark Marquez going to be a Repsol Honda rider? There's there's an interesting tease in the documentary that I think has been used twice in the three episodes for a later episode where uh, a a relatively irate Marquez makes the point of, I will win again with or without you. And it doesn't show us who he's making it to, but it has to be Honda. Um, There's a demand being made there about the quality of the bike, I think. And that is something that's borne out by what we've seen now from from two preseason tests, both at the end of last year and at the start of this year, where he's been, you know, deeply unhappy with the level of the current Honda. Um, we don't know if Mark Marquez has lost something or not in all of this injury recovery, setback recovery, operation recovery. We don't know if he's the same rider. No one knows that except from him. Um, but th- the reality is that there was a point where when the Honda wasn't that good, that was okay because he could still manage it. But now we're in a situation where maybe he's not as good maybe he is we don't know but every other bike is really good and the honda's maybe worse than it was relative to the bike it was then never mind relative to the other four manufacturers in the grid and i i don't see him being a title contender this year because of the state of that bike and if he believes he's fully fit and recovered after everything he's been through and the bike's not good enough he's out of there he is not going to stay. He is not going to waste one day because he has lost three years of his career to this injury. He wants to be the most successful MotoGP rider of all time. And he's, he's not going to sit around kicking his heels in a bike that isn't good enough whenever literally any other machine in the grid is. Um, I, I think Honda are under real pressure, like really, really massive, significant internal pressure right now. To, to help him deliver this year. And I know he has a contract for 23 and 24, the, the last two years of that four-year deal. But if this bike's not good enough at the end of 23, I think they're going to be looking for a new factory rider for next year because he'll buy his way out to win. He's at that point now. Uh, it's, it's Actually, the documentary is, without even having seen the stuff that directly touches upon it yet, it's weirdly revealing in terms of his potential thinking with Honda because... Like, when he said, back during his whole injury recovery situation, when he said to the media that, look, if I continue to perform at that level that wasn't good enough, I'd just walk. I'm not sure I ever believed that because he was still winning the occasional race. He was still getting in the top five fairly regularly. He was still competitive. And the doc kind of, you know, it backs it up unless he's having it up for the cameras, which honestly, I'm I'm not so convinced. There are a few fair few episodes where Mark makes it really clear that finishing 
third, fourth, fifth. Nah, I can I can quit now. There, there there are members of his family that are telling him, look, you've won so much. You can wrap it up. You do not have to be in pain anymore. You don't need to try if you're not going to. And I think Mark is he's not ready to wrap it up. But if he's not going to add to his trophy cabinet in a meaningful way, then it, it really does look like he could accept it. And he was going to accept it until the fourth surgery came along to fix his him from a physical standpoint, which it looks like has been a success longer term. Uh, but, you know, there's also the diplopia, of course, and potential recurrences. And, you know, vision is a scary thing. There's probably the at the back of his head, if, you know, if I crash again and my vision is just permanently doubled, you can't live like that. You can't, you know, on a day-to-day basis, you're going to spend 10 hours puking each day. Um, it's Look, it's a very interesting situation because obviously he's just turned 30, like a, a couple of days ago, I, I think, which makes me feel really old. Uh, and I think all of us. Um, there is the question of gratitude. Honda invested a lot of money into him on this latest contract, and he has not got the return on its investment through circumstance. It's nobody's fault. It just happens. But Honda, the impression from everyone is that Honda has looks to have treated him right through it all, which because they could not. There's no real way around it. You can't put pressure on the guy who is your MotoGP program. You have to you have to handle him the way he wants to be handled. I think there's a, a lot of residual gratitude in that, but clearly I think Mark has made peace with the fact that even with all that, if I have to leave, I leave. Uh, there was a like an event in Spain for the premiere of this documentary very recently, and just to read out one of the quotes that he gave during that event, I have told Honda many times that my goal is to win, and my goal is to win with them, but the main goal is to win. I mean, that tells you everything, doesn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think as well, like you, you mentioned the prospect of Marquez potentially walking away for his own reasons. Almost with every extra surgery or every extra injury return or every new hurdle that he just pushed through anyway, I feel he's taken it too far now. He, For himself, it feels like he cannot afford to walk away until he's given us a proper healthy go, as healthy as he can get on a competitive bike. Otherwise, what was the point of the, for him of the last few years? Diplopia is such an interesting point as well. Like it's very easy to forget that side of it and just think about the arm damage. But as soon as the double vision started popping back up as a as a factor in what was going on, that that to me was even more scary because partly because I remember how big a deal it was after that initial Moto Two crash over a decade ago, and the fact it could have actually been a career ender even at that point. It was that serious. But then for that to not be a problem for so long and then reoccur a couple of times, it's like oh my gosh, you're dealing with something. You know, you, you like you say, Val, you cannot function if you have permanent double vision. He's dealing with properly scary stuff. And he's pushed through all of that. And he's still back again. He's He's got to stick around now for his own sake until until something good comes. And he can end the story on his own terms, surely. And that's a, that's a slightly scary prospect. Yeah. And, you know, that Mandalika crash was, you know, dry tires on a wet track. That just happens. There's no There's no great way of protecting yourself from that. I mean, you can maybe be more selective when you actually got out in the track, but yeah, I, I just, I did, I, like in the documentary there when Marquez describes that as that's sometimes you crash, that just happens. I did think you crashed a lot repeatedly yeah. that weekend, and then you yeah. went out and did that in the warm up. So mm, there's a little bit of selective uh, 
but yeah, yeah sorry, obviously, back to, back but to your point. I just I could that was one of the bits of the documentary that really stood out to me as going, nah, nah, Mark, you're, you're editing your story too much here. But, what I mean is, it's not a writing style crash. Yeah, there no, will absolutely. be occasions in MotoGP if you're fighting at the front that are going to require you to do something like this in terms of conditions. Maybe not in that not in a warm up, okay, but in a Q one or a Q two, absolutely. In a flag to flag race, absolutely. Yeah. Not in a warm up when you're lucky not to have broken something three times earlier in the weekend. So that's yeah. I think that's my point. No, absolutely. Um there's you're right, I haven't really considered it, but the you know, just putting himself myself in his shoes, there is a sunk cost fallacy there that you cannot beat. He has been through too much to call it now. He has, you know, he has had too many travails, too many struggles. If if like if you were to end your MotoGP career, you should have ended it at the end of 2020. You can't now. You're pot committed. Got to go. Got to see through. And I always thought that he would be a one manufacturer for life rider. Um, I thought that Mark Marquez was going to end his, his career as a Honda rider and be an ambassador for them for life. Um, I've changed my opinion on that now because of this because of, of you know that return that blood sweat and tears that has gone into the last three years he it is you know almost reawakened the desire in him to win if we got to the stage he was still in a honda he'd won two more titles and the rookies were getting faster and the kids were beating him he'd accept it as a part of growing older but i, I don't think he has the mental capacity to do that anymore because of how much he's given um in 20 and 21 and 22 so there has to be a way for him to win again. And if that means ditching Honda, that means ditching Honda. And the reality is that every manufacturer in the MotoGP grid will have him. Um, there is no one who would not kick out their number two rider in the team to create a, a path in for Mark Marquez. Um, there, there's one where it's complicated a little bit, and that would be Yamaha. I, I don't for, even think it would. Man. Really? Yeah, mm. I don't even think it would. Wow. Because I mean, from a Valentino like from a Rossi's game theory perspective, anyway. yeah, but the, like the same management that was part of those feuds is still there. I, I think if Mark so Marquez it, went directly to Japan and said, "Change the management, I'll come right for you," nah, you know what I mean. That is the power that yeah, we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, that that's the influence that Mark Marquez has. He's earning double what anyone else in the grid is earning right now uh, for riding around the last three years injured, essentially. Um, he, you know, his 2020 season might be, uh, might be the worst season of his career, but it will per race be the greatest paying season in MotoGP history. Even without the injury, it would have been the greatest paying season in MotoGP history because yeah. it was a 14 yeah. round COVID season. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, that's how much he commands here. Um, I always thought that the path forward was Ducati. Um, but. I almost, I think the more time goes on, the more I see his future of Honda don't get their act together being on a KTM now. Yeah. Those have always been the two, haven't they, really? Partly because of Red Bull, partly just because it sort of makes sense bike-wise. I mean, Aprilia I, I just probably can't afford him, I don't think. It would be really cool to see, but like they'd have to really change the way they operate MotoGP, I think, and he'd also probably demand more than what they currently have. So it wouldn't just be a contract investment. It'd also be like, I don't know, it was an equity stake or something. I don't know. It'd, it'd, be, it'd have to be some... It'd be like that time uh, Jordan tried to get Ayrton Senna by 
by offering him a part of the team, basically. Um, I think the problem here for Honda is that Mark's closest confidant, uh, lovely brother Alex, is on a Ducati now, and they don't even have to exchange any sensitive information or anything like that, and I don't think they will, but there will just be this constant reminder next to Mark that the grass is, in fact, greener on the other side. Like, we've already seen in testing, like, however Alex's season goes from here on a baseline level, he will be quicker on a Ducati than he is on a Honda. He already is. It's I think it is fairly obvious. And Mark's too smart to ignore that, and he'll he will not have the opportunity to forget about it. Uh, now, whether he can actually find himself a place on the Ducati at some point, I don't know. But I, the the one career one one team career thing is look does look like it's potentially falling apart here. Yeah, this is potentially wishful thinking on my behalf. But one thing that that's maybe worth remembering because I think there is an element of it to Marquez is that. You know, a, a previous world champion, uh, anecdotally, I had always been told, had said that he was going to retire when he earned X amount of euros, when he had X amount of euros in the bank. Mark Marquez has earned that same amount as a base salary in four years at Honda. That That's how much more than the rest of the, you know, the grid we're talking about here in terms of income. He can afford to, if his desire is to go back out there and win, and the KTM isn't necessarily looking like the best bike on the grid. And Ducati, I mean, theoretical world for the Ducati isn't the most amazing machine it is right now. And the Yamaha's still struggling a bit here and there. And he looks at the Aprilia and thinks, you know what? That bike is the greatest bike on the grid at entering a corner, which is exactly where I'm strong. And that's the bike I could win a championship on, even if they could only pay me a quarter of what KTM can pay me. It's not an unrealistic world that he goes out and goes shopping for the best package on offer for him rather than the best financial deal because the motive to win is going to be so high. I mean, we, we so often on this podcast come back to a kind of Aprilia applause corner where we kind of go, look at this sign of how far Aprilia's come. And I think we might just have hit the pinnacle of that there. Right? You know, a couple of years ago, here we were. I should say that the same would potentially apply to Suzuki if they were still in the grid. Yeah, you know, yeah it, it's not it's not a an, necessarily an Aprilia love-in point, but it is quite <laughs> funny that whenever you listen to their riders talking about the specific strength of their bike, it's where Mar- Marquez is strongest as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Suzuki, Suzuki would have always seemed more realistic because it had a record of success, whereas... Yeah, like we often say, a few years ago, when the Maverick Vinales to Aprilia news first broke, we our initial thought was a bit of laughter, and then it and then it became very true. Whereas now, year and a half on, we're going, yeah. The only reason Marquez might not join Aprilia is they might not be able to afford him. Oh, actually, he might do it anyway. That is how the world of how the world of Aprilia has moved on. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking, and this is you know probably the rules probably don't allow that in their current shape. But would you? If, if you were Ducati and if you were Dorna particularly, would you try to do a three factory bike thing again, like Honda at the, you know, 10 years ago? Ducati's not going to want to lose Bagnaia or Bastianini, but how about a third red bike? For- wow, can we stop giving them ideas to put more Ducatis in the grid, please? <laughs> 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 Hard stop. 
<laughs> I, I was gonna, I was going to say MotoGP and its teams have a way of making things happen like that. If it's necessary for the storyline or the show for this team to suddenly have an additional factory bike, it will it will definitely happen. They, they don't need to put an additional factory bike in the way, grid the way Ducati works. Claudio Domenicali will straight up tell Bagnaia and Bastianini that whichever you does the least well next yeah. year goes to Pramac. Yeah, very true. All right, we'll uh, we'll wrap this up with a little prediction. Where I think 2024 might be too early, but where will Mark Marquez be in 2025? Val, you go first. All right, well, that's, like that was not in the podcast notes, and no, naming me first nice for this it. is... It's a real like, like it's a real live grenade. Okay, uh, this is this is a problem. All right, Simon, you go first. We'll fail by <laughs> thinking time. I've invested too heavily in the Aprilia storyline now. I only have one option to, to give us an answer here. It's Aprilia. Aleish will have retired by then, so they won't have to get rid of anyone either. Ducati. No, KTM, KTM. God damn it. Aprilia, KTM. I'm going to go with still Honda. <laughs> Perhaps just through too, too many years of just indoctrination of Repsol Honda being a bike that is competitive. I just think this this is not this is not over yet. This is not... I cannot see Repsol Honda being on a permanently bad trajectory as much as it tried to do the impression of, an impression of that over the last half decade or so. On, on that note, Matt his new job in the PR department at Honda. <laughs> Based on some of the features I've greenlit over the last three years, you know that is not happening. For what it's worth, maybe we're like maybe we're we're a bunch of suckers basically, and actually this is just Mark Mark's way of making sure he doesn't get a big big pay cut for his next Honda deal. Yeah, just to sort of make him think you might leave when in reality you're never really going to. I think that's also a slight possibility, though. Yeah, I think probably too much not. I mean, it's Honda. They could they could turn out a better bike tomorrow. We could go to Portimao and the bike could be competitive. We've seen this happen before where the bike's been crap and they've went to the final night of the final test and suddenly he's been world championship contention for him again. So we rock up to Portimao and it's a Calyx. <laughs> a Calyx framed triumph engine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's the answer. Where will Marquez be in 2023 on a Calyx? There we go. That's, uh, I think that's the... It's a, it's a, it's a JSXRR repainted and everybody <laughs> pretends to not notice. Yeah. Like, Ken Koichi's black, white back wearing a blue shirt. But that's yeah. cool. <laughs> he heisted that one away from Hamamatsu. His key card still worked. So he, he went in, loaded in the van. <laughs> Got the bikes, got a van, <laughs> job done. I think we have basically advocated that should be what Honda does anyway. Right, I think we've we've covered Marquez past, present and future adequately there. So now we did mention Marquez being a superstar rookie. Last week we talked quite a lot about Augusto Fernandez being the only rookie on the grid this year. Next week's episode of the Race MotoGP podcast is all about rookies, but looking a bit further into the future. So we're going to be making some predictions for riders that will arrive in MotoGP over the coming years. Over the, let's, let's set uh, 2030 as a kind of arbitrary deadline. And we'd like your input as well, please, listeners. So who out there? And let's not just think Moto2, Moto3. Let's look at the Superbike world. Let's look further down. Let's see in the Rookies' Cup. Who have you got your eye on who you think will be on the MotoGP grid by the end of the decade? You can email us uh, a little written message or send us a voice note to podcast at the-race.com and we'll include as many of them as we can fit in as well as our own deliberations. And there's also a kind of sub-question to this, a question B that we'll get into if we get time. Who should have had a chance in MotoGP who didn't get one? 
let's take it from the last 10 years, which riders from other parts of motorcycle racing or the MotoGP ladder categories didn't ever get on the MotoGP grid and deserve to. And we'll be putting in some of our contenders for that honor as well and, uh, and debating those. Thank you very much for your time this week. Thank you in advance for your submissions for next week, which I'm really looking forward to hearing. Enjoy the Marquez documentary if you're going to be watching it. Enjoy F1 testing it if you're going to be following that with the race. And we'll speak to you all again next week. The Athletic.